Pastor Tim Bogus tells a story of a six-year-old in his congregation whose parents described him one Sunday the previous week standing at the edge of the neighborhood's swimming pool. His little toes were clinging to the concrete as he leans forward, his legs trembling with fear. Finally, he seems to settle down, and his mother hears him say, God, give me skills or give me gills. And with that, he jumps into the pool. Give me skills or give me gills. How many of us have prayed a prayer like this? Maybe not exactly this prayer, but one like it. You're getting ready to go into the interview for your dream job. You're walking alongside your girlfriend, rehearsing the proposal that you're ready to give. You go into your first class of your first year of college. You go into the hospital to give birth to your first child. You hear the diagnosis. You feel what you think may be the call of God to go into pastoral ministry. You stand at the edge of the pool, at the edge of the change, of the calling, of the challenge, toes gripping the concrete, knees shaking, praying, give me skills or give me gills. Oh God, call forth the gifts that you have given me so that I can succeed or overcome, or barring that, give me what I need to endure what is to come. It's an honest prayer. It's a humble prayer. It's a prayer that asks God rightly. Solomon stands at a precipice. He's tapped to be the new king of Israel now that his father has died. And as the text puts it, David is now sleeping with his ancestors. David, of course, is the most famous of the kings of Israel, lauded through the generations as the greatest king, as the king by which all other kings will be measured. Solomon, no doubt, has a sense of that legacy, of that greatness. And certainly the people who came after and cataloged the stories that make up books like First Kings, they knew of it. So what is Solomon to do? How does he follow King David? Standing at the precipice, Solomon does the only thing he knows how to do. He goes to a high place called Gibeon to offer sacrifices. Sometimes a thousand rams he was known to offer. It's important to remember here, it's intriguing, that we're told by the narrator early on that Solomon loved and walked with the Lord, but, except that he also sacrificed and offered incense at the high places. That was considered idolatry. It was considered a sin against God. So now Solomon is facing the biggest challenge of his life, and what does he do? He resorts to the very practice that the God he loves has condemned. 
Further irony of the story is that far from rejecting Solomon because of it, God shows up at the high place where Solomon is in his high anxiety, sinning against God at that very moment and offers him a lifeline. Now, anyone who spends time with the Hebrew Scriptures knows that the leaders of the Jews are always portrayed as complicated human beings, not immune to the temptations of power. You remember early on, the priest Samuel warned the people that they did not need a human king, that a human king would be, well, human, and that God alone was the king. But the people, in their own anxiety and fear, are grasping for a human king, and they get it. And one only has to look at the text that falls between the sections we read this morning to understand the complicated nature of these kings. In that text, Solomon's mother is mentioned. Her name was Bathsheba. Bathsheba, who the great King David, the incomparable King David, saw bathing on her roof and who lusted for her and who in his power summoned her to his own bed even though she was married to the soldier Uriah, the faithful soldier Uriah. And when she becomes pregnant with David's child, David sends for Uriah from the front lines of battle hoping to trick him into thinking he is the father of this child. When that doesn't work, David sends Uriah back into battle and instructs another soldier to kill him. And when the deed is done, David takes Bathsheba as his wife and she bears his son, Solomon, the greatest king Israel has ever known. It's complicated, in other words. We, too, often prefer our heroes rendered superficially, glossing over the things that make them and all of us paradoxical. But not Israel. They preserved the paradox. And it's to our great benefit that they did. Solomon also knows all of this history. He is the product of this history, of David's greatness, of his significant flaws, as he stands now himself sinning at the high place and is summoned by God with a simple question. Ask what I should give you. What do you need in order to take on this task? God asks. Craig Barnes, who has preached here before, the president of Princeton Seminary, says, your calling is not primarily to accomplish something, but to serve God, who will always lead you to places where you are in way over your head. For any one of us as individuals and for our church collectively, 
if we are serving God, the God of Abraham and Sarah, the God of David and Bathsheba, the God of Solomon, then God's call will always take us to places where we can look out over the edge, our toes gripping the concrete with fear and anticipation, wondering what in the world we've gotten ourselves into and how we're going to move forward. We can only hope that like Solomon, the God who leads us to the edge also accompanies us to the precipice and asks us, what shall I give you? And Solomon asks rightly. He may have a problem with sacrificing at the high places, but that comes out of a real sense of anxiety. He knows he's in over his head. That's why he went there in the first place. He he acknowledges that he's young. He doesn't know how to go out or how to come in. He names that the people he's called to rule are are numerous and, and great and that the task is daunting. He's honest. I know a person who has been struggling with questions of vocation recently. This person has strongly felt that perhaps she was being called to seminary and to pastoral ministry. And once she began researching the seminaries she might attend and learning about the programs and the professors and the reading lists and all that went into it, she wrote to me and said, every time I look more deeply at the seminary, I feel like an imposter. An imposter. You've heard of that before. It's called imposter's syndrome. The phenomenon where you feel like you're in a context, a situation where you really don't know what you're doing and sooner or later, somebody's going to find you out. I felt badly for her because she seemed to me to possess all the gifts and graces for seminary and for pastoral ministry and would be a gift to the church. And I remember trying to tell her that, being supportive, sharing all the ways I thought she was more than capable, more than talented. But I wish I could go back now and add to all of those other words one other thing. Good. I'm glad you feel like an imposter. At the end of the day, we all are imposters in the ways of God. I often have people who are approached by our nominating committee say to me that they don't feel qualified to serve as an elder in this place. And they say, you know, there's so many other talented and intelligent and deeply spiritual people in our church. And I've taken to saying to them, yes, you are right. There are a whole bunch of intelligent and talented and deeply spiritual people in our church and you are among them or the nominating committee would not have called you. But if someone is ever nominated for elder or if somebody ever walks through a seminary's doors with their head held high and don't feel daunted or humbled by the precipice before them, maybe they are not qualified. It should be deeply humbling for all of us. Solomon asks rightly. He asks for understanding. 
for a discerning mind. Walter Brueggemann tells us that understanding mind is more closely translated listening heart. A listening heart. We've always thought of Solomon as possessing wisdom. But it's easy to forget that he asks for wisdom and he's given it as a gift. Given the chance to ask God for anything, Solomon does not ask for riches. He does not demand the conquest of his enemies. He asks for the thing that sets good leaders apart from bad. The capacity for attentiveness to the needs, hopes, and expectations of his people, his subjects. He asks for the opposite of a hard heart. He asks for a listening, a discerning heart. He asks for wisdom. He asks rightly. Wisdom, a listening heart, an understanding mind, discernment. We as a church, as a community, we also stand collectively at a precipice. We are still in a time of great uncertainty. The fact that we're not singing today in worship points to that. The fact that many of us are still wearing masks points to that. The fact that out in our culture, it's still a great, a great deal that is not known points to that. It's a time that could certainly paralyze us with fear, cause us to retreat from the call of God and to play it safe. Or we could listen for the voice that is always there, summoning us. Even when we in our anxiety turn away to the high places, the distractions, the voice persists. Even in our paradoxes, in our complication, in our failures, the voice persists. In the uncertainty of the future, standing and looking out at the waters below, wondering what's next, the voice persists. What do you want me to give you? We could do worse than pray as Solomon did. To acknowledge that God is God and we are not. To ask for wisdom, an understanding mind, a listening heart, discernment, skills or gills. We can ask rightly. It may be so for all of us. Amen.